Thank you. Thanks so much. It's been a long time since I've been to an Inspire service, so it is exciting to be here with you again. Um, so thank you for having me. Um, I know you'd probably much rather Trevor, but thank you for your grace in welcoming me this morning. Um, as Joan said, I do spend a lot of time um, with the kids here at the church, which I love. And I thought part of what we'll do this morning is I don't want you to miss out on some of the fun that kids have. So I thought I'd start with something a little bit different. I've got some um, cups up here. I'm just going to put some water in them because I'm going to do a little activity. So let me just bear with me. Um, today we're talking about having confidence in things. And actually, um, Pastor Peter, do you mind being my volunteer today? Fantastic. You just need to come and stand here. That'd be great. Um, and what I need you to do is just hold your arm out, your right arm, just one. Yep, that's it. I'm going to put this cup into it. Or you can hold onto it the other way so it doesn't tip. It's got water in there. So you don't want to, yep, that's it. Perfect. Um, now I'm just going to hold this one too. And um, what we're going to do, I'm just going to put a little bit of mine out actually because I've noticed that I had some, there we go, that's better. Um, what we're going to do, um, when I say go, what you need to do with your left hand is you need to tap your head three times. Yes. Tap your shoulder three times. Yep. And then tap your head three times again. But while you do that, you need to close your eyes. Can you remember that? Yeah. That's good. That's better than the kids do. Nothing with the cup, with the cup yet. Yeah. Hold it. Yeah. Are you ready? Are you sure? You remember what you're going to do? Okay. Ready? Go. Great. How's he doing so far, guys? Excellent. On the count of three, what we're going to do is we're going to tip our cups over our heads. Still feeling good? Yeah? Yeah. Um, I am also going to tell you, you're not going to get wet. Do you believe me? <laughs> not super confident. I understand that, but okay. Um, do you think we are both not going to get wet? Who thinks I'm not going to get wet? Great. Who thinks Peter might get wet? Oh, how's your confidence level? Um, Jesus is here. He looks after me on every occasion, so I'm trusting him. That's good. That is good. Okay, ready? On the count of three. One. Yeah, we're just going to tip it over our heads right above us. Ready? One, two, three. Go. That's all you need to do. Did you get wet? No. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you for your help. Everyone give Peter a big round of applause. Jesus is very good. There is a little trick to that as well. But we are talking about having confidence. Um, and a lot of things in life we can have a lot of confidence in. You're sitting in chairs. You're quite confident they're going to hold you today. But there are some things that we might have confidence in and then sometimes actually our confidence can get weakened and we might experience doubt. Um, I have been looking at the reality of children who grew up in church and then have learnt the things of God have confidence in that as a child, but actually choose to walk away from that. They have doubts that come their way. And um, there's been a few people who have been prominent Christian people of late who have been going through what they call faith deconstruction. There's a guy by the name of Josh, Joshua Harris. When I was in high school, he released a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. 
he was only 21 at the time. Um, and then he went on to be a pastor of quite a large church in America. And then just recently this year, he came out with this statement. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. He's not alone. There's a guy from Hillsong Church. He's actually a songwriter. His name is Marty Sampson. And just recently as well, he came out with an Instagram post that said, I am not in anymore. I want genuine truth, not the I just believe it kind of truth. So there are people who are genuinely wrestling with what they thought they believed that now they're not so sure about and they're deconstructing their faith. And a lot of the studies have been having a look at young people leaving the church and saying why is that or what is actually happening. There's a group called Pew Research Centre in 2015 that surveyed young adults who had identified as nuns. So that's N-O-N-E-S, people who no longer have any religious affiliation. And 78% that they were, said they were raised as a member of a particular religion, not just Christianity, before shedding their religious identity in adulthood. In Australia, the Lutheran Church conditioned a, um, a, a study as well from Hughes Christian Research, and they record an 80% loss. That equates to approximately 50,000 young people leaving the church each year. That is a large number of people. There are some leading reasons for the departure. 75% of church-going adolescents feel that they already know all there is, everything of value there is to know about the Christian faith. Some of the other reasons they're saying is that questions of faith that young people have have been ignored. People weren't adequately equipped to answer questions that they might have. A negative view of the church, the church is overprotective, it's too shallow, it's anti-science, um, it's doubtless. There are no doubts in church. People have been misunderstood. From the Hughes study, this is one of the statements they made. One of the greatest sins identified by the younger generations is inauthenticity. Believing in something just because you have been told to is an example of this. There is a determination to make up their own minds. So there's this issue of a generation coming through who are questioning and wrestling with doubts. But I want to say today that it's not just an issue of a younger generation. This is actually the, a, a resounding kind of thing to wrestle with regardless of your age. And in fact, actually, quite some time ago, there was a man named Charles Templeton. He was a contemporary of Billy Graham's, a famous evangelist um, at the same time as Billy Graham. And then he made this statement. I had gone through a conversion experience as an incredibly green youth. I lacked the intellectual skills and the theological training needed to buttress my beliefs when, as was in inevitable, questions and doubts began to plague me. My reason had begun to challenge and sometimes to rebut the central beliefs of the Christian faith. His doubting journey actually took him on a path where he walked away from faith. And in, interestingly, there's an interview um, that Lee Strobel had with him just prior to his passing away in 2001. Um, it's, you can find it in the book called The Case for Christ, and it's fascinating his reflections on his journey. But the reality is that doubts can come, and the response to doubt can be quite alarming. When people are looking at these well-known Christians today making statements, there is deep sadness within the church. There's great fear. Does a doubt mean 
if a person expresses that, that they're no longer a Christian, what are we supposed to do with doubts? In fact, Marty Sampson, this Hillsong songwriter, actually came back to say, I have and continue to analyse the arguments from prominent Christian apologists and biblical scholars, and am open-minded enough to consider the arguments of atheist debaters and debaters from other religions. If the truth is true, it will remain so regardless of my understanding of it. If I search it out, surely it will become even more clearly seen as the truth that it is. So he's on this journey. He's got doubts. He's got questions. Does that mean he no longer has faith or he can no longer be a Christian? Or is there something that we can do with our doubts? And I want to explore that today because the presence of doubt doesn't mean that we don't have faith. But sometimes we feel if we have doubts, that's dangerous. Does it indicate the beginning of a slippery slope to the departure of our faith? What if we have doubts? For many people who maybe have grown up in the church, there's this negative reaction to the expression of doubts when they come around certain aspects of our faith. These people who have doubts are not Christians anymore. Their questions are leading other people away from the truth. So I want to ask the question, can I still be a Christian and have doubts? I don't know where you particularly sit this morning. I don't know if you have doubts, how much you doubt, or even what it is that you are doubting. So I can't give a specific answer to your specific doubt. I think it's actually quite a broad-reaching space. And the truth is many people try to give an answer, and sometimes the answers are not always simple. So I don't want to tackle a particular doubt or the reason around it today. What I want to do is deal with the existence of doubts themselves and the truth that doubt doesn't necessarily stop you from becoming or staying a Christian. What I want to do is share some things that may or may not be of help for you if you are in the midst of the doubting process, whether you find yourself in that situation right now or maybe that's something you'll come to in the future Or maybe you're helping somebody else through some of these questions. So we're going to have a look at them, um, just a few together this morning. And the first one is, how much do I need to believe to become or to be a Christian? How much do I need to believe? There's a guy named Michael Payton, and he works with the Dallas Theological Seminary in America. He's been part of a writing team, writing some theological coursework for Charles Swindle. And, um, And he has written um, what they call concentric circles of faith. He said, actually, not everything in Christianity is of equal importance. He said, when you have a look at Jesus' teaching, Jesus explained that the greatest commandment in Matthew 22 was love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. When the Apostle Paul was speaking about doctrine, he explained that some doctrines are of first importance, implying that others are of less importance. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. When the Apostle John was writing his biography of Jesus, not everything could be included. He was forced to leave some of the less important information out. 
We know this because in his closing statement in John 21, he says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So when we have a look at the doctrines of Christianity, one of the way to think about it is to draw these concentric circles, as Michael Payton says. And in the very center of the circle, if we have the circles come up, thanks, David. So we've got some concentric circles there. In the very center, if we think about the center of it all, is the things that are essential for our salvation. So we keep going on to the next few slides. Thanks, David. So these next one as well. Great. These ones are essential for our salvation. This is the inner circle contains what a person must absolutely believe in order to be a Christian. They include the things like the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. He was fully God and fully man when he lived on this earth. That Jesus died on the cross and his death on the cross paid for the sin of all of humanity. That he didn't stay dead, but he rose again. And that we people are sinners, we are broken and we are in need of saving. And we are saved by grace through faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. This is essential for salvation, the inner circle. But if we go to the next slide, thanks David. The next circle out, this is a second circle, contains doctrines which a person may not have to believe to actually become a Christian, but they are so significant that if we mess with them, there would be serious implications. So these ones are essential for orthodoxy. If we go to the next slide, thanks, David. These ones, um, one of an example of this might be the authority of the Bible. A person could come and place their faith in Jesus to save them without actually believing that the whole Bible is true. So in a sense, it's not the inner circle doctrine, but the implication for not believing the Bible are huge, both individually and corporately as a church community. So it's essential for our orthodoxy, but not for our initial salvation. As you go out to the next circle, the third circle contains doctrines which typically would divide denominations or separate them. They're things that might include baptism or communion or speaking in tongues. Um, it could be about church leadership structures. So this outer circle is important, but it's not essential. It's things that might be um, people might discuss or hold an opinion to, but within different Christian denominations, there would be varying beliefs. So if we have a look at that, the concentric circles of faith, why is this helpful? Well, firstly, because a person doesn't need to believe absolutely everything Christianity teaches in order to become a Christian. And that is because we are not putting our belief in a system, but in someone. We are saved by our faith in a person, not a religion. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What matters is Jesus. The passage that we are talking about, um, talk about belief that's focusing in on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The second reason why this is helpful is because objections or questions a person might have about Christianity may not be as big a problem or as big a barrier as you might think. Some people figure out all their questions before they come to put their faith in Jesus, but most people become Christians even though they have not had all their questions answered. So that leads us to ask, if doubts are okay, how much doubt 
can I carry and still stay a Christian? Of the things that I do have to believe, the central things, how much of it do I need to believe? What if I look at the resurrection of Jesus, but I'm not 100% sure? Is that okay? Is it okay if I'm only 95% sure or 80%? What if I'm only 60% sure? It is actually possible to believe and to have doubt. We see that actually because Jesus had an interaction with a man who was longing for his son to be healed. And Jesus asked him to believe. And he, this man said this in Mark 9. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. The Bible is clear that we need to believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. The Apostle Paul says, actually, if Jesus hadn't done that, our faith would be worthless. But we don't have to be 100% sure. A lot of people think that becoming a Christian is like crossing a busy road. We look both ways and we don't cross until we're 100% sure that we can cross safely. And although this scenario seems correct, it assumes that we have an endless amount of time on our hands to decide. But unfortunately, the decision to become a Christian is not without time constraints. For each one of us, our life on this earth will end at some point. We only have a limited amount of time to decide whether or not we will place our life and our eternity into Jesus' hands. So perhaps a better analogy of, um, to think of becoming a Christian is like jumping out of the way of a Big Mac truck. Suppose we find ourselves standing in the middle of the road. We look up, we see this truck coming straight towards us. We are forced to make a decision. Do we jump out of the way, assuming the truck will continue straight along his path? Or do we stay where we are and assume the truck will swerve around us? We will never be 100% sure of either. In fact, we may be 51% sure of one and 49% sure of the other, but we have to make a decision. So we make a decision based on probability. In the same way, all of us have death coming straight towards us. Do we jump into the arms of Jesus, trusting him to save us? Or do we stay where we are and face death on our own? We may be 51% sure that Jesus rose from the dead and 49% sure that he didn't. But one way or the other, we need to make a decision. Doubt and faith can coexist. We can actually experience both in our journey. John the Baptist is an example of this. John was able to recognize Jesus while he was still in the womb. He spent his whole life pointing people to Jesus. In John 1.29 it says, Look, this is what John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet towards the end of his life, John had a crisis of faith. He sat in a prison awaiting his death and sent messengers to ask Jesus, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? In response, Jesus didn't reject John. He didn't condemn him. He didn't judge him. But rather, he reminded John of what he had seen. And then he, cho he told to the people who had gathered around him these words of John about John. He said, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Jesus did not condemn him for his doubt. Suppose a young child had never been on an elevator and one day she walks into a very tall building 
she notices people walking into the elevator and the steel doors close and they never come out. As you can imagine, this could be really frightening. After some time, this child decides that she is going to take a step of faith and jumps into the elevator as well. She hears the big sealed doors close behind her. She notices that everyone has turned around and is now facing the front. And she then begins to feel this weird sensation in her stomach as the elevator begins to ascend. After some time, she starts to get freaked out by the fact that nobody is talking to each other. And there is some weird music playing in the background. But here's the thing. No matter how anxious this child becomes, no matter how significant her doubts, no matter how much she may regret her decision, the fact is she will get off on the 10th floor just like everybody else. Her doubts are only significant if they stop her from getting on the elevator in the first place. In the same way, a person become a Christ, can become a Christian and still have significant doubts. What matters is that they are willing to jump on board. Certainly their experience as a Christian might be plagued with doubt. They may be much more likely to question whether or not they've made the right decision than a Christian who has less questions or doubt, but they will still reach the final destination. Jesus will still be with them on the journey. We don't need to be 100% sure that Jesus died and rose again. We just need to be sure enough to place our life and eternity into Jesus' hands. And the amazing thing about doubt is doubt actually has the potential to lead us deeper, more into a more secure confidence than we could have known if we ignored our doubts in the first place. When we ask the hard questions, we begin to learn more about who God is. Craig Groeschel, who is um, a well-known speaker from America, has actually experienced this in his own journey as well. And he made this statement, my bout with doubt continued through childhood into my teens. It crept up occasionally while I was in seminary. It's bothered me even as a minister. On again, off again. Some days spiritually confident and strong, other days inwardly unsure and insecure. I've come a long way since then, and my roller coaster faith has leveled considerably. I'm still not free from all doubts, but I've climbed a long and difficult path. From here, the view is a lot clearer, and my confidence in God is more solid and lasting. So doubts don't have to be detrimental to our faith. And it stands to reason by the current crisis of faith that people are seeing in, gen in the next generation coming up that this final thought is going to be fairly obvious. But I want to assure you today, if you are sitting here and you have experienced doubts or you have doubts right now, that you are not the first person to have doubts. Maybe your doubts are not in the outer circle of the concentric circle thing or not even the second, but maybe it's actually part of that inner circle, um, part of the beliefs of what it means to be a Christian, and you have doubts there. Maybe you believe because people around you believe, and so maybe you've jumped on that wagon, but you're not really sure. Maybe you feel that you are asking the question, is my faith just a way of coping with my weakness? Is Christianity just a myth? Is Jesus the only way? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Well, I want to finish this morning by sharing the historical experience of someone who knew exactly what it was like to have these kind of doubts. These doubts about the very core aspect of what it is to put our faith and trust in Jesus. And his name is Thomas. Thomas was most likely a fisherman in charge of the family business, and he met Jesus and was given the chance of a lifetime. 
instead of fishing for fish, he could fish for men. And Thomas, like all of the disciples, left everything to follow Jesus. He walked away from work and family, from a profitable business, from whatever home he had built, because he believed in the one who had called him. Thomas didn't doubt, not at first. In fact, in John 11, we see there's the brave Thomas. When Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, we read, and for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there, for now you will be really believed. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. They knew going towards Jerusalem was going to be detrimental for Jesus' journey. They were afraid, but not Thomas. He was keen to go and be with Jesus. After three years teaching his disciples, Jesus gave his life on a cross, and Thomas's world went dark. Three days later, the word on the street was, he is risen. And we see a very different Thomas now. Thomas hears the women declaring Jesus is alive. And I imagine everything within Thomas wants to believe that Jesus had returned from the grave and defeated death. But like so many others, he doubted. In John 20, we read, One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wounds in his side. Thomas knew the significance of what people were saying and what it would mean if it were true. If Jesus had risen, everything forever would be different. He refused to take anyone's word for it. Thomas had to experience it for himself. Thomas was unwilling to settle for second hand when first hand experience was a possibility. If Jesus is alive, then everything he said is true. The kingdom of God is here. If Jesus is alive, the gospel demands my entire life. So for Thomas, he's thinking, I must know for myself. Thomas was not afraid to ask the hard questions, but he did more than ask. He pursued the answers. And Thomas didn't just stop at asking. He didn't become stuck circling in a holding pattern of skepticism. He continued exploring and his honest pursuit of truth took him straight to the risen Saviour. Because later on in John 20, we read this. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. In that moment, Thomas was sure. For a Jew to proclaim that Jesus was God was blasphemous, punishable by death. But Thomas did not care because he believed. Now, Jesus could have been angry about Thomas's doubt. He could have publicly humiliated this so-called follower for his faith struggles. He could have put Thomas in a spiritual time out, but he didn't. Instead, Jesus, in his love and mercy, gave Thomas exactly what his faith needed. He invited Thomas to touch and see his risen body. And although we don't see in this passage that Thomas takes up Jesus' invitation, I don't think Jesus would have thought any less of him if he did. 
Do you know what's fascinating is there's no hint that Thomas is close to actually understanding until this moment. His faith is really in question. He doesn't hide his doubts. He openly acknowledges them. He put it all on the line and says, God, prove it to me. He basically said that God needed to reveal himself until I see the scars. And this morning, I can't speak for God or promise you how he will work. But the character of God was revealed in his interactions with Thomas that day. Thomas declared that he was open to believing if God would reveal himself. And I believe that God will treat you with the same patient understanding. Ask the questions. Seek the truth. Then watch God give you what you need to help you believe. Our hope is not in the finite things of this world. It's not in the reasoning out of logic. It's not even in making sure that every box is ticked on our list of questions. The hope we possess has nothing to do with how confident we are and everything to do with the one in whom it is placed, the living, almighty, or powerful God. And so I want to encourage you this morning. God is not insecure. He is big enough to handle our doubts and our questions, and he actually welcomes us on that journey of asking and seeking and longing for him to reveal himself to us. So I want to pray for you this morning. And then I know we've got another song we're going to sing about our living hope being in God. But let's just rejoice in the fact that God's arms are wide open to us on this journey of discovery of him. Let me pray. And God, we thank you so much that it is true you are not insecure. You are a God who has made yourself known. You came willingly. You made it possible for us, not just to know of you, but to know you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the sacrifice you gave. We've been celebrating that this morning as we shared around your table, that your body was given for us, your blood was poured out, that we might know forgiveness, that we would know what it is to be set free, to have life in you now and forevermore. And so we thank you, God, that on this journey of life, you know that we are not strangers to doubt or moments where we're unsure, but actually you have encouraged us because we've seen examples in your word this very day that you're not afraid of our questions, but you treat us with grace and patience and love and you invite us, you beckon us to come to see for ourselves you're a good God. You're a God who is full of love and kindness. You're a God who longs to actually journey with us here and now, but to spend forever with us too. And so I want to pray this morning for the, each one of us gathered here, for those who are struggling with doubts, that they, by your Holy Spirit, would actually just be willing now, just like Thomas did, to put it on the line to ask you, God, right in the midst of that, to come to reveal yourself to them. For those maybe who've been sitting unsure that maybe because they've got doubts they can't even put their trust in you, well, I pray that right now today, Lord, they would have the courage and the boldness to actually declare their need for you as their saviour.
to trust that you are who you said you were, Jesus, that you've done for them what you said you would have done and that they are free and forgiven, made whole in you because of your sacrifice. Help them, Lord, today we pray. And for all of us on this journey, Lord, of knowing you, we thank you for each and every day that you help us to see a little bit more of your greatness and your goodness. You are our living hope. And we want to declare your greatness even now as we sing together. We thank you, great God. Amen. Well, isn't that a brilliant hope we have in Jesus? And I have found as I get older and older, that hope just shines brighter and brighter. Our confidence in Jesus. If you're not sure about that, come talk to us. We'd love to pray for you. Barry came up before when Joan was praying. You might have noticed that, but he was just itching to say thank you. Where are you, Barry? For people to be praying for him. He's in our newsletter here. And he just came up. His name's there. And he just wanted to say thank you. So, Barry, lovely brother. Come on, yeah. And I, this is the other thing I wanted to say. Whoops, brother, yeah. He's just had cardio. That's why he's, um, um, so we don't want him to, um, yep. Good morning, Pastor. Good day to you all. Now, you possibly wouldn't know me yeah. because, I mean, you've got all these guys on page 12 to pray for. Well, I'm one of them. I had, I had thoracic surgery to go my heart out three weeks ago, tomorrow. And you hear you are an Inspire. I'm still here to Inspire. I've had surgery. I've, had, I've been brought back from the dead about four or five times, and I'm still bloody here. Wow. <laughs> Thank you to prayers. That is true, you know. It's true, isn't it? It is true. When you see God involved in your life, help that man down, yeah, because we want him to stay alive today. <laughs> it's true, but isn't it? When you see the hand of God in your life, the things that are being spoken of, the truth, the reality, oh, he's just our wonderful hope. He's in Jesus. Lord, we say thank you. What a testimony from a man, yeah, here today. We just want the world to know the wonder that's found in you, Lord Jesus, you who came truly, died, rose again, the victorious risen king, and with us here. It isn't a person, Trish said it so well. It's not in some system. It's in Jesus Christ, the living king. And thank you, Lord. Continue to bless Barry, Lord. May he continue to grow in his faith and trust in you as we pray that for every one of us, Lord, until you take us home to be with you forever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We give you our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So good to have you with us this morning. God bless you all. If you do want some prayer, um, we'd just love to pray for you. And you know there's good things coming out there as well. And see you at the high tea as well with the thousand others that are going to join us. Praise God. Praise God.